You're listening to Partnernomics Podcast, where we discuss the art and science of developing successful strategic partnerships. To learn more about the suite of Partnernomics solutions, visit Partnernomics.com. All right, well, today we are joined by Jay McBain. So, Jay, man, what an awesome, uh, what a pleasure it is to have Jay on here and to have him share his insights uh, with us. But in his latest seat, uh, Jay is with Forrester Research as uh, one of their top analysts in this world of partnership and ecosystems and all of these, uh, these different worlds that we play in. But Jay, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. I think the pleasure is mine. I really enjoyed reading your book and uh, I subscribe to, to everything you do. So I'm well, really likewise. <laughs> likewise. Well, Jay, man, I'd love, to, I'd love to just start with talking about, I think you have a fascinating background, first of all, and I think it's positioned you perfectly in my humble opinion, for where you are, the insights that you bring, and, you know, just kind of shows the, the depth of, of your knowledge, your background. We have to have that context first before we could really advise people, and you have that. Would you mind sharing with us a little bit about uh, kind of the IBM days and the, and the Lenovo, those other days that, of where you came from through your career? Yeah, I've spent 26 years in the channel. I was a channel chief at uh, companies like IBM and Lenovo, you know, spent 17 years doing that. Uh, I work for Autotask, which is a company that a lot of partners run their entire company on as a platform, uh, which became Datto and became a public company worth about $4 billion a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I founded uh, my own software company to build channel um, analytics and channel mobility and channel social and got to do that for seven years uh, you know, as a CEO and founder and out raising money and looking at the channel from a data perspective. And now for three and a half years, uh, worked at Forrester with a, you know, a pretty big, um, you know, foundation of clients right across the, the scope and got to learn from almost 10,000 people, companies that are running channels and the best, the good, the bad, the ugly. Yeah, it's so awesome to have that perspective. I share with people uh, when I started my career at, at Sprint and just I just got lucky just to be in an industry in the late 90s that was about ready to be truly revolutionized by technology because whenever I started a sprint, the only thing a phone could do was make a phone call or leave a voicemail. (laughs) And it seems like, you know, all the crazy things that we have it do today. And that's where I really cut my teeth on this this world of of partnering. But uh, Jay, so you're an analyst now. What does that mean for people that uh, may not be familiar with you know, what the day in the life of, of Jay is all about? What, is, what does it mean to be an analyst? And is that something that you set out to do in your career? Yeah, I think uh, you know, being an analyst means that I count a lot of things and record a lot of things. I grew up with an accountant as a father. So I think I, I grew up with an early age of, you know, since the time I was 11, I tracked every dollar I spent and earned. There was no program to do it back then. So I built my own and that was before Quick, uh, Quicken and Microsoft money and things. And then, you know, five years later, I was able to move the money into there. But every document I've ever had is scanned on my hard disk. Every picture is digital back from the 50s from my family, all up till today or digital by month by day. So my entire life is kind of analytical by nature. And so when I look at this industry, there's so many people with an opinion on things. I try to dig a level deeper and look at surveys and look at um, the different communities and look at the broader scope of what this entails and go right from the top down and try to figure things out um, logically and scientifically uh, to perhaps you know help people in their journey. 
We certainly do. It's what I love about the pieces that you put out. It's not just a first or second layer of the onion. It's it's driving into the core. And really, that's where the insights are. And we have a chance to see all of these different relationships, which really builds the picture of, of what's going on. And as you know better than probably anybody else, it's it's evolving, it's moving, it's adjusting. And uh, it's, I, I love whenever you talk about kind of the futurism. I mean, what what is the world of what is the world of partnerships? What did it look like a decade ago? What does it look like today? And where are we going? And that's, it's absolutely fascinating for me. And I think, you know, for business leaders, that's our job is to understand what the future is, what it, what it holds so we can position ourselves for that success. I'd love to just have you kind of do a quick recap. What was this world of partnering a decade ago? And what is it going to look like over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, absolutely. Let's start at the very top. So partnering is a very important part of the technology industry, as well as other industries. You may not know, but 75% of world trade goes indirectly. You bought your last car from a dealer. You bought your last TV from a retailer. You bought your last jar of peanut butter from a grocer. Almost everything you do in your personal and professional life goes through channels. When we look at the technology industry, one of 27 industries, Three and a half trillion dollars are spent by business and governments, you know, year to year on technology. 64% of that is transacted through channels, VARs, resellers, managed service providers, system integrators, ISVs, well over to distributors and everything else. So looking at that, you know, 2.26 trillion or almost two thirds of every dollar that's spent, you know, I look at all the different types of channels, which today there's 16 different types. Back 10 years ago, we sold hardware, software, and services. Today, we sell over 26 categories of technology with 200 categories beneath it. It's not just security. There's seven layers of security. And then there's 17 sub-layers to that. So it's much more complex than the way we used to sell technology. 10 years ago, we used to sell technology to an IT buyer. Today, in the cloud, multi-cloud, hybrid cloud environment, 65% of technology is sold to line of business executives who themselves have changed over the last 10 years. They spend 51% of their time doing tech. So you used to be a VP of marketing and now you're spending 51% of your time on tech. In many companies, the head of marketing spends more on technology than the head of technology. So we're, we're in this different buyer stage. Now we're in this different you know, level of complexity of products. There's 35 million different permutations of types of customers by sub-industry, by geography, by product type, by sector segment and size, by the 16 different models of channel partners that serve them. So this whole world that makes up not only the 64% transacted, but the 90 plus percent of technology that is channel assisted. And that's the world that I'm in and I just love digging into. Yeah, it's it's fascinating and it's complex, but uh, absolutely fascinating and tons of opportunity there. Jay, I'd like to kind of kick this off by starting with kind of the, from the beginning, from an executive's perspective, wanting to get in and leverage this the ch the channel or leverage the power of partnership. I'd like for you to speak to a CEO, speak to a CEO of a decent sized company. He or she is thinking about jumping into this indirect world, this channel world for, for you know, to, to build through partnerships. What is step one in building a strategy or what do, what's their mindset? What are some of those things they need to think about right out of the gate? 
Yeah, it's a great question. So Accenture went and talked to every CEO in every company, size, geography, industry around the world. 76% of CEOs think that their current business model will be unrecognizable in five years. So I'm speaking to one of those 76% or the 24% that just don't know it yet. But the fact of the matter is everything is changing. No matter what you do, what you sell, what industry you're in, disruption is there. And, and we've got lots and lots of examples of what that might be. But the number one reason, by the way, that the business model is changing and the biggest driver of it is ecosystems. Every single company is starting to look at their go-to-market, their routes to market, and how they're going to be successful. Every company in every industry is becoming a tech company. It's the forklift that adds an internet of things device to the forklift and starts to send out a thousand data points per second. That forklift is now a digital ecosystem and it's building new partnerships. They obviously have the dealer network that they've had for decades to sell forklifts, but the importance to the CEO now is the broader set of players that influence the buyer. So to answer your question, every CEO has to be obsessed about their customer and their future customer, their prospect. They have to be obsessed from that very early moment in the journey where they have a problem or need a solution and who surrounds them from that very first moment. And we know those moments are digital. And given COVID, they're becoming more and more digital. We also know that those early digital moments lead to vendor selection now in a majority of cases without ever talking to a salesperson or filling out a web form with the correct information. So every CEO has to look at their buyers, look at the demographics and firmographics and all the different elements of it, look at their personas, but get obsessed over these early digital moments and get obsessed over the ecosystem that overlays that. The average buyer of everything, B2B buyer, will surround themselves with five different influencers. The eBooks they read, the podcasts they listen to, the events they go and listen to keynotes, the board of the association that they're a member of, all these things become influential in terms of how they make their decision. We know that the future buyer looks a lot like a consumer. So how you're gonna buy technology in the future, software, hardware, different products, is gonna look a lot like how you buy a car today. And so the CEO has to look at that buyer, look at their journey and get obsessed obviously over that journey and the five people or companies that surround them to the point of vendor selection. Because right now you're being threatened that you could lose a deal without ever knowing there was a deal. It's going to miss your direct marketing. Your salesperson's never going to get a shot. And without the ecosystem and without the partnerships, you're going to miss your chance of winning that customer. And I think that's where you know 76% of CEOs are at right now. Yeah. Safe to say if, if you have a company, you're running company, you're leading that company. If, you, if you're not partnering, if you don't have a partnering strategy, you better get one. Right. And we have to disconnect this idea of partnering with transactions. And I think that's where people get caught up with the word channel. Uh, they always equate channel to go to market is, you know, a percentage of my partner or my customers are going to buy this way. A percent are going to buy this way. You know, some might buy direct, some might buy through retail, some might buy through some level of you know, indirect channel partners you know, that, that are driving around in white vans. You know, all this makeup of getting to the total target addressable market size of my company is what's important. And so usually when you draw out, as you become more mature and you look at 
you want to get all the chances up at the plate you can to swing at the ball. So over time, you're going to set up all these routes to market to make sure that wherever that buyer is going to spend the money, you're going to be there. And what's changing now in an ecosystem is it's disconnected from the actual transaction. There's a lot of movement to subscription and consumption models underneath this. There's a huge move to marketplaces, which have grown more in the last three months than the last 10 years combined. We know this because of COVID and a lot of this is accelerating because of COVID. But disconnecting yourself from the transaction where you, know, you wanna be the places your customer spends the money and actually transacts, that's important. But you now have to be in this early journey so that you have either a seat at the table or you're influencing those five people that do have those seats so that they can get to vendor selection and you're involved in the deal. But in a subscription model, that transaction is only the first 30 days, 30 days with the customer. So from that point onwards, I need to make sure my product or products are adopted because I won't get renewals or retention. I need to make sure that my products are integrated and sticky within that customer environment so they can't be unplugged. I need to make sure that every 30 days, there's somebody out there upselling and cross-selling more of my portfolio and more of my future innovation so that I can enrich my contracts. So there's this whole world now beyond the transaction that I have to build this third channel for. So this is a trifurcated model where I have an influence channel, a transactional channel, and now I have a retention channel. So this trifurcation means, and the better way to call it is an eco ecosystem of non-transacting, non-traditional partners, in addition to the current you know, partners that you may have that make up this entire customer journey model. So we talk a lot about, uh, you know, in, in our content about Clayton Christensen's world, you know, the jobs to be done. And it's not about products. It's not about services. It's really about the solution. And the solution's not static, you know, to your point. The solution, it's, it's ever growing as technology comes in. You already mentioned IoT, Internet of Things, where we have all these data collection sensors. It's just one piece of that. Um, solutions are not static. And so it's so interesting as I reflect back on my career at Sprint, I had, you know, some different times when I was engaging with, uh, say, folks from procurement, folks from supply chain management. And those are typically roles that are very transactional. They're, you know, they have commodities, right? They buy commodities and there's certain levels of, of negotiations that go in there, but it's about service level agreements. It's about a statement of work. It's about a master services agreement very kind of prescriptive, but the world that I was mostly in was on the opposite end of the spectrum, that truly strategic side of partnering, which is all about innovation, creating this differentiation, creating stickiness, uh, giving people a reason to keep their cell phone and to pay those $100 a month bills or, you know, whatever they were. Uh, I'd love to just kind of have you chat about that a little bit of partnerships, because whenever I jump on a podcast, I have a conversation with a partnering professional, I say, I can tell if they really understand partnering because we always start with the basics. How do you define partnership? What does partnership mean to you? And we kind of get into this, it's on a continuum sort of a, of a conversation, but how do you see partnerships? I mean, how do you see the spectrum and the continuum? And, and even from an executive's perspective that's now ready to step into this, this partnering game, they know they need to play how do they wrap their head around partnering if they really have never been in that role before? Yeah, I mean, the first 
answer is if you equate partnering to the transaction, you've got to widen your aperture. The ecosystem has so many different moving parts in it that affect so many different parts of your customer's journey that that's the first part of the conversation. When I said that there's a lot of permutations, if you go back to those vectors that I talked about, the different roles, you know, the 65% of buyers who sit outside of IT, you look at the 297 sub-industries, you look at the 197 countries, you look at the different sector size and segments of customers. SMB alone has six or seven segments in it. You look at the different product areas, which I mentioned hundreds of categories of products now. You look at the 16 different partnering models, business models, that they, how they run their companies and they make money. If you multiply all that together, not only do you have 35 million different customer permutations, the average customer today, when you talked about a solution, buy seven different things. So the average cloud deal today will have seven different things involved, sometimes with seven different companies. So now you're multiplying 35 million by seven. You're in this world where in an ecosystem, you might be the center star in that ecosystem on day one, but the next day you're some outlying comet in another ecosystem. So you might be layer one of the cake, the layer one of the seven part solution, and you might guide the rest and provide a multiplier for others to participate in the broader solution. Or you could be a last minute tack on for a deal that you represent maybe 1% of the size of the deal. And this is hard to discuss in front of big companies like Microsoft, uh, you know, Sprint, now T-Mobile, uh, hard to have the conversation in front of an IBM or an SAP or an Oracle who have always been the center star. To tell them that there's another company further down the stack that they might just be a security bolt-on or they might be an AI bolt-on later on is hard and it's not part of their sales model. It's not part of their marketing model and they haven't developed partnerships themselves that support that ecosystem model. So every single company that I talk to, the 10,000 or so in the technology industry that run channels have to broaden their aperture and the average program that I look at has to grow by 10 times the amount of partners they have today to the partners they need in the next three to five years to be successful across this entire conversation. That's the big change is from channel partnerships, transactional to ecosystems and more of a trifurcated model on top of this longer journey. That's so interesting because like a lot of these, these big companies that you talked about, I mean, they're, they're used to being the company at the center, they get to demand what this, what this arrangement's going to look like, right? <laughs> well, I don't necessarily call that a partnership, but they do, right? And they kind of get to demand what that is. The, the game has changed. Even the big dogs aren't the big dog necessarily anymore. And we, we, whenever we talk to some clients, it's just because a, a company is strategic for you, it doesn't mean that you are strategic for them. But in 2020, and as we're stepping into 2021, even the big guys are, are no longer the, the power players anymore. So that's, that's really interesting to, to see that uh, come, into, come into the fold. And they're really needing to, to sharpen their swords and, and get some skills because the, the rules are, are definitely changing. Jay, I'd love for you to, to chat a little bit about you know, a lot of times we see whenever we're working with companies, especially those that are standing up new channel programs, they start with getting one of their best salespeople and because they're a great salesperson, that means they're going to be a great channel salesperson. 
And that is typically not the case. As a matter of fact, more often than not, it's the exact opposite skill set. And a lot of times those folks fail. I'd love to get uh, you know your comments, your feedback. Um, you know, again, kind of talking to that CEO that's going to be standing up and, and launching this program. Um, what have you seen as doing just that, getting your good direct sales people and putting them uh, responsible for the channel? And then two, great uh, channel sales folks, those leaders, those managers, those chiefs, what's the skill set that they need to have? Yeah, it's a great question. It's actually been scientifically proven. There was this great Harvard Business Review case uh, that kind of looked at that question exactly and looked at the skills, looked at the day-to-day -day activities and really took you know, from a best case scenario, best practices and looked at all the great channel leaders uh, around the world and looked back at their career, looked at their history, looked at their skill set, hunter, farmer and all the different angles and personas that you can take. But here's the conclusion and this is a conclusion for CEOs, is what makes you a great direct salesperson or what makes you a great direct sales manager is almost the opposite of what makes you a great channel leader. And here's the difference. The channel leader is more of a general manager. The channel leader, by the way, to a CEO looks a lot like you because the channel itself tends to run in a silo. It has its own marketing and sales, channel sales, channel marketing, has its own channel operations, has its own channel finance, has its own almost group underneath it like you do in your C-suite. So you have your CFO, your head of channel finance is in and reporting to that channel chief. So your ability to handle permutations. As a CEO, there's a lot going on in your company. There are so many moving parts and you're one of the only people that see all those moving parts in this celestial stars and moons and all the things that are happening and everything's in emotion. Everything else, everyone else has a more myopic view of the part of the organization that they're running. So in a channel, the see a bear, shoot a bear, you know, direct sales, I'm going to go and hit my quota personality tends to be the opposite of what you're looking at. You know, you need a channel sales leader and channel sales people that do have those skills, but at the same time, managing a very complex uh, relationship that that channel partner may not need you, you may not need them. One day to the next, their mind share might be in different places. You don't control them, they don't control you. There's a mutual benefit. There's a value creation there. There's a network effect. There's a, a co-innovation effect there that needs to be managed differently than revenue and profit and customer sat. The people that are great channel leaders tend to be great alliance leaders that can work at the same time on very quantifiable goals and quantifiable uh, results, but at the same time, managing and nourishing and supporting relationships along the way and handle all these millions and millions of moving parts that we talked about. And so trying to get somebody that's good in a certain role that's very linear and move them into a celestial role, as the Harvard Business Review case uh, summarizes, is a recipe for failure. Number one, it's a double failure because you're taking your best salesperson off the street. Sometimes you'll make them a sales manager, which is bad as well. There's a high failure rate of your best salespeople. You've just got to recognize them and pay them and keep them motivated to do what they do best. 
and recognize that you don't have to move up the organization and be a C-suite person, that you can get paid more than the C-suite if you maintain your profession and, and you're the best salesperson in the company. You should make more than you know most of the company, even you know as much as the CEO in some cases in smaller companies. Second, though, your channel leader is again compensated differently and motivated differently, and they're the linchpin. They're the, the the key to your ecosystem strategy, and they're probably going to be in your C-suite over the next couple of years, and you're going to drive them to build out this broader ecosystem that's going to drive your company. Yeah, I'd like for you to just reflect back on your career, all the conversations you've had with leaders that, uh, you know, that have built up channels and managed those. But I'd like to know, what are some of those, those common failure points? What are some, some of those common reasons of why, you know, these, these partnership programs have fallen apart? What are some of the common reasons that you see? Yeah, one of the most common things that's missed by most people is what gets you to the dance and what gets you into being a large organization, probably almost for every company that I talk to. You know, they had cut their teeth, you know, as a smaller company, they earned SMB and mid-market, they earned their way up into enterprise. And when I'm, I'm talking big names here, I'm talking about Microsoft's of the world and Salesforce, and these are big companies that didn't just become Fortune 500 players competing with IBM and Oracle and SAP. They grew their way up there. And the way they did that is a community approach. You know, they convinced each department, they convinced each channel partner, they convinced that they could solve problems. And then they scaled those problems to the point where it ended up becoming a more elegant solution than perhaps one of these big players had in the past. And so they didn't just, start their company and you know start knocking on the doors of you know Bank of America and Boeing and McDonald's and you know they started their company and, and built it organically. But once they become a larger company, they kind of forgot their roots. So when you look at them, you know, are they participating in the communities where the channel is? Remember channel businesses, you know, 98% of them are you know small companies. You know, the average channel, millions of companies has eight people. They're very small businesses. They're what you would call prosumers. So those very small companies don't participate in the market the same way you do. What they read, where they go, the people they follow, you'll quickly kind of forget those roots and move up into this enterprise space and into procurement and into RFPs and things like that. And you haven't in your organization built out this SMB and mid-market community approach. And that's the biggest and I could drop the names of almost every Fortune 500 player that, that we talk to. And, and we look across these 54 magazines and 64 podcasts and 24 associations and 99 LinkedIn groups and 25 Facebook groups and all the distributor communities and blogs and thought leaders, the 150 events every year that have these small businesses you know, come and learn and get influenced by. And then when we show them that they're nowhere to be seen, they don't have a community manager, they don't have you know, input. They might be on the front cover of that magazine once a year because they buy up millions of dollars of advertising. But the fact of the matter is they don't have that same approach which made them successful. And so it's great that you're doing the enterprise play and continue to do that well, but the other one-two punch is continuing to do the things that got you where you are. Yeah, man, great, great, great points right there. Uh, Jay, a lot of what we see is with, with the CEOs and these senior executives, whenever they're standing up teams and launching them, 
in almost every case, it doesn't seem that they are allowing enough time, a realistic amount of time that it will take to really stand up this, this channel approach, or at least this indirect approach. Um, and a lot of times they even underfund it and don't really understand the software technologies, the other tools, the pieces that, um, you know, the, the hammers and the screwdrivers that these professionals need in order to be successful in those roles. I'd like for you, you know, just to grab your insights, you know, as we're standing, you know, the CEO is going to be standing up this channel program. What should they expect as far as timing and resources and, and tools that they need to provide these professionals to, to give them a shot at, at success? Yeah, so it's interesting. When you look at the partner journey, right from the point of recruitment, onboarding, incentives, motivation, enablement, uh, from a sales, marketing, and engineering perspective, co-selling, co-marketing, all the different elements through the entire partner journey, there is about 100 different things that go into the average mature partner program. When you're just standing up a new program, you don't need 100 things. However, there's about 20 to 30 of them that you do need to reach table stakes, where a partner can come into a portal, have enough self-service, and have enough you know, boxes checked on the program where they can make money, they can learn, they can get enabled, they can do some marketing. You know, they need some basic um, table stakes to get going. So understanding those is one thing. So the program elements, you don't have to hit a home run. You don't have to have Microsoft's program day one. And we watch, there's 175,000 software companies, for example, today. 10% of them are actively investing in, in programs. 17,000 companies, you know, building out, hiring people, building out the processes, building out the programmatic elements. And then the fourth and most important piece is the technology backbone that makes all that work. One of the ways I get to predict the future is I publish a channel software tech stack. It's got 159 companies today that basically build the building blocks of those 100 program elements and allow you to build an ecosystem, allow you to build a channel program by watching these 159 companies closely, especially looking at their 18 month roadmaps, I get to predict the future. Of the 75% of world trade that goes indirectly, it all funnels back through 159 companies who implement this. And I get to see where the future of incentives, I get to see the future of onboarding, education, training, certification. I get to see the future of enablement and all these other elements, deal wrench, lead passing, all these other elements, I get to see the next 18 months inside you know, these companies that make it all work. So that's one element of the technology stack that goes into building a successful program, making it, you know, simple, great UI, great user experience for your partners, you know, great portal, all the great tools in there, but you've got to make it automated. An ecosystem is big. It's not about having five or 10 partners. It could be a hundred, a thousand, 10,000, a hundred thousand partners. So you can't put humans against all those processes. You've got to automate along the way. And whether you have 100 or 1,000 partners, it's all self-service, flexible, agile, adaptable, and it all runs in a way that's infinitely scalable. And so these are the things that most companies make mistakes at the very beginning. They work humans into every process. They gate themselves in terms of growth because of all the broken pieces of it. And the more work that can be done from a programmatic and a process and a technology perspective out of the gate will lead to faster growth. The last thing you ask is time. I've never seen a channel program get stood up 
and start driving ROI before 18 months. So if you're gonna stand in front of your board, if you're gonna stand as a CEO in front of your stakeholders and think this is gonna happen by mid next year, it's just not. It's but amazing how many think that they can do it in six months. Every single company you know, that we've watched, 10,000 different companies that have done this, it's taken an average of 18 months. And yep. the reason is that this is a multi, like I talked about a lot of things, a lot of program elements, a lot of process, a lot of technology. There's a lot to it. There's a lot to recruitment. There's a lot to getting partners to the point where they know enough to be dangerous and they can be dangerous on their own instead of you handholding them all the way. So given that, what you've got to do as a CEO is you've got to take a step back. At some point, your company hits a wall in terms of direct sales and you need to franchise. The CEOs that don't uh, predict that timing well, don't tend to make it because their boards every quarter get a little bit restless. If you can predict that two years ahead of time and start to build this channel in parallel to great direct sales and e-commerce and other you know, routes to market, where at the point it starts to hit a plateau on the direct side, now your channel then takes on and keeps the hockey stick going. Those are the CEOs that you know, obviously get written about and uh, are the ones that um, you know, understand that why 64% of the whole technology industry goes indirect and why these big companies like Microsoft are 96% channel is because they effectively uh, franchise their business and put their restaurant or their coffee shop on every street corner in the entire world. And so got to that level of scalability and um, acceleration and amplification that's needed to take your brand to the next level. Edgy, I love the way that you talk about and think in terms of ecosystems because that really resonates with me uh, on, on many different levels from my background in, in telecom, putting that together, but then just also as an economist, just seeing how things are, are, are interoperable. But the, those, those conversations and a lot of what you just said really resonates and has me ask. So you've had a chance to, to check out Partnernomics, the book, and thank you for doing that. And uh, also uh, checked out uh, our website a little bit. You kind of understand where we're going as a, as a company into the future. How, what, I guess, what do you see or what is, what is a piece or what is a, a role that Partnernomics can play in this ecosystem? Well, I think there's a huge role. Um, you know, when I mentioned 10% of software companies, 175,000, there's 17 and a half thousand new partner leaders that, you know, need to build an ecosystem. You know, they need to figure out the elements of that program and the processes and the technology. They need the learning. They need the education. They need the certification. They need to build teams of people who get ecosystems. So that's a huge role that, that you play. Uh, they need the consulting help. They need the, the, the view into the future and where their company looks you know, three to five years from now. And like we said, reverse it out to today and put actionable steps in place for early 2021 so that we reach those 18 month goals and we continue to accelerate on a hockey stick. You know, the consulting piece is absolutely critical, but the academic piece is kind of that third part of this. There is an ecosystem and an economic value to all of this. You know, companies are starting to talk about their multiplier number now, which for every dollar they sell, the ecosystem gains $5. And what that pie chart looks like, the 64% of that sets professional services and 
all the different level of detail to the second decimal point. This is all quantitative and it's understanding how to message a non-transactional and a non-traditional partner who may not participate in the transaction and may make front or back end margin. The economics are different. You gotta talk to them in a way that they could go earn a dollar or $2 for every dollar you make at 75% margin. It takes the focus off of resale and it takes the focus up into the ecosystem of how you're gonna attract and you know this gravity that's out there in these galaxies that we're talking about, the center star gains more and more gravity you know, the larger it gets. And your ability to do that is around an economic model that one plus one equals three. And so that is the piece that I think that you're going to hit the home run with um, on top of those two other elements in, in terms of guiding these 76% of CEOs on the future of their company. So much of what you say there really resonates. I was invited to come out to Andreessen Horowitz, uh, one of the largest venture capital firms in the world for that matter, right? But right in the middle of Silicon Valley, I was asked to come out and to do a workshop for a lot of their, their top growth prospects, uh, their companies. And I had about 75 people in the audience and I asked them, how did you, so it was all partnering professionals. I asked them, how did you learn this art and science of partnering? Every person had the same answer trial and error. Yep. Trial and error is so expensive. You know, there's a better way to do that. Um, but I mean, I, I know you went to college for many years. I went to college for 15. <laughs> I did not have a course in partnering. It's just not there. It's, it's learning a lot of different things. It's learning marketing. It's learning uh, you know, business law. It's learning finance. It's learning all of these different components, but there is no track for that. Um, what would be your recommendations to, to team leaders, to people that are responsible for professional development within companies? What's the best track to put people on to try to learn these different skills so they can become great partnering leaders? Yeah. So what if you were in college and your first one-on-one course on business or marketing started with 75% of world trade goes indirectly. Now let's talk about marketing in a world where 75% of your buyers will end up transacting to someone else. So you don't go you know, to the company, you end up going to the dealership, you go to the agent, you go to the reseller, you go to the retailer, you go to the franchisee, you know, you need to start thinking to, through, and with partners from the very beginning. That's your first five minutes in Marketing 101, which doesn't start that way. You go through Marketing 301 and 401, and then you get into Marketing 501 and a master's degree, um, and you're still thinking that you own 100% of your customer moments where you just don't. And unless you understand ecosystems and partnering and understanding the layers of influencing the influencers, you've, you're disconnected already. And whether you take finance, whether you take operations, whether you take sales, all the different disciplines, like when I talked about the Harvard case, all those disciplines in a world where 75% gets transacted somewhere else, where operationally 75% of the data is coming from third-party sources that is inaccurate, needs to be cleansed, and is not decision driven. When you're thinking marketing and sales, everything changes in a world that is bought through somewhere else. And that's one of the you know, university uh, guidances that I would give 
is rethink through those lenses and just get out of this mode where you think that you own that single chair at that table of the customer, single throat to choke or trusted advisor. There's gonna be a lot other chairs, there's four other on average. And your chances of getting one of those five chairs are minimal and getting smaller. So if you don't think that this is the key way going forward, it's gotta be a change in, in the way you open your aperture of how you exist in a solar system and how you're going to you know, thrive. It's not gonna be your product or your service. You will be a piece of the solution. Correct. That is it. So Jay, I uh, got one last question before we let you go. And as I started this uh, conversation off, love your research, love the work that, you're do, that you do. And whenever it comes to looking at the future, predicting the future, I think you're in the best seat or you have the, the best wisdom out there to share. So I'm gonna ask you to share what is, as you look into the future, the next five to 10 years, what, what's out there and what is probably going to surprise people the most? What's going to be the biggest change that, that we're going to see over the next five to 10 years from a partnering perspective? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it wraps around the customer. It always starts and ends with the customer for me. Um, you know, I try to answer all partnership and ecosystem questions via what's happening to the future buyer. You know, with a future buyer that looks more like a consumer, it means that a lot of consumer-related skills and technology are coming into the B2B space to serve that, things like attribution. When you think about the buyer in terms of how they prefer to acquire any, any product, you know, with a rapid rise of marketplaces, more in three months than 10 years, you start to think in an Amazon model, you think in a D2C model, direct-to-consumer. You know, could I acquire technology the same way I do razors, you know, each month? And you start to think in a product-led model where like Zoom, for example, which we're on right now, you know, goes out and wins hundreds of millions of clients for free. But at the 45 minute mark, uh, it's about to turn off unless you put your credit card in. That product-led model led to a company that's worth hundreds of billions of dollars of valuation today on the stock market. So you have all these competing factors, but all of them are directly linked back to the customer their preferences, their behaviors, their journey, and their psychology. So I would spend all my time there and let all the other layers of the onion flow out from the customer. Great insights, as usual, Jay. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for what you do. Thanks for what you do for all of us partnering professionals and uh, look forward to staying in touch with you and continuing to, to watch the good research that uh, you do there at Forrester. Thank you. All right, thanks so much. Have a good day. You too. Partnernomics podcast is brought to you by Partnernomics. Learn how to leverage the power of partnership. To listen to more episodes of Partnernomics podcast, visit partnernomics.com.